Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Hello. So good to see you guys this morning. My name is Nick. I am the youth pastor, and I'm going to put in a quick plug for the youth ministry because it's good. Uh, If you are a uh, 6th through 12th grader, or if you have one, or if you know of one, or if you run into one on the street, we would love to meet them. Um, We go downstairs after the main service at 11 in the youth area down there. And we also meet up here on Wednesdays from 6 to 8, where we do small groups with wonderful adult leaders from the church, many of which are in this room right now. Youth ministry is good. I like it. You should, you should help us out. Um, I also want to quick take a quick sec. So my wife had surgery on Monday. Um, she's doing great. Everything is going really well. Um, but I just wanted to offer a thank you to so many of you in the church who have brought food over, who have just come and visited, who have been praying for us. It has been such a blessing. And I just wanted to take a second to thank you guys for caring about my wife and our family so very well. It's a wonderful representation of the church. So I just want to take a quick sec and thank you. And now I'm going to tell a weird story. Uh, when I was in high school, I lived in Germany because my dad was in the military, was in the Air Force. And so we lived in cool places. Uh, we lived in Germany when I was a sophomore through senior, and it was the first place I ever had a car. And my first car was a 1981 Ford Fiesta. It was terrible. It topped out at about 30 miles an hour. Uh, it wouldn't go past third gear, and it hardly ever worked. I had to park it on an incline so that in the morning I could just throw it in neutral and give it a little minute to get going, and then I might be able to get the gas started and drive it. Uh, it was a piece of trash, but it was my first car, and so I, I loved it. I uh, tried to take care of it the best way I knew how. I also did stupid things with it. Like me and my friend Sean, uh, we lived near this little forest area which had um, these large trails in it, and a lot of times people would drive their cars through these trails and go like mudding or off-roading or whatever, and uh, usually that kind of activity is reserved for good cars, like Jeeps or things that are capable of driving in wet and muddy conditions. The 1981 Ford Fiesta was never advertised as the kind of car that one should drive through the woods. But I didn't care. I did it anyway. Um, And so we'd done it several times, and this one day we're doing it. We're driving in the woods, and it was a little muddy. And we came to this little curve where there was a patch of mud, and I began to turn the wheel, and the car did not turn. It decided it didn't want to. Um, And as I told you before, it topped out at about 30, so I was at about 30 miles an hour. And because it wasn't turning and we were in a forest, we hit a tree. Just smack right into a tree, crumpled that car where, you know, I mean, it wasn't very big anyway, but it grew to about half its size after being crumpled by a tree. We were both fine. There was no injuries or anything. But I was uh, terrified because I was going to get in trouble. I was doing something stupid, something that I'd been told not to do, um, but I did it anyway, and sure enough, I crashed the car. And immediately, my mind begins to think, how do I get out of this? How do I avoid punishment for this very dumb thing that I did? So I turn to my friend Sean, and I'm like, Sean, can you tell my parents that you did this? 
would it be all right with you if we, when we got home, said, Sean was driving, and I don't know, he's crazy, and we hit a tree? Because they can't punish you. They can just tell you to go home. Uh, but me, they'll tell me to stay home for months at a time. And for some reason, he refused. And I was like, what kind of friendship is this if you won't take my back? So I did the next brilliant thing, which was hide it. Now, surprisingly, it was actually able to sort of drive home. It limped home, which was only about six minutes away. We drove home, and this is a weird, quirky thing. In Germany, the garage that we had was like a block away from our house, and we rarely used it. It's just where we stored stuff, and it was usually where I parked my car when I didn't have to park it on a hill. So I just parked it in the garage, closed it, and went home. That was my brilliant plan to get out of being in huge trouble for crashing my car by doing something dumb. As you can imagine, this didn't work well. Uh, about two weeks later, I just told my parents my car's not working. And often I would leave my car at the auto shop at school for them to help fix it. It was this nice, wonderful, free way to get my car fixed. So I just told them that I left the car at the auto shop at school because it wasn't working right. And so that seemed to work. Um, about two weeks later, my grandparents actually came to visit. They were in town, and uh, my dad says to me and to my grandpa, hey, let's go look at your car. I'd love to show grandpa your car. And he's like, didn't you get it back yet? And I was like, no, it's not. It's no, 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 we can't do that. And he's like, oh, man, I really wanted to show him. And I was like, well, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I wish we could. And can we do anything else? Um, and so anyways, he decides, well, let's just go down to the garage anyway. I have some stuff I wanted to uh, ask grandpa about. And I was like, I don't think we should. I don't know. That's a long walk for him. He's old. This is probably a bad idea. And he was like, ah, you're probably right. Let's just drive down. So they got in his car. And uh, yeah, we walked over to the garage. And I, I, I don't even remember what my brain was doing at the time. But I know that my heart was beating a million miles a minute. And again, I had a chance here. I could have said, Dad, look, before you embarrass me and yourself and your dad, my car's in there and it's crumpled, and we should probably not do this. I had that opportunity. I chose to neglect it. Um, <clears throat> and instead, <clears throat> I don't know if I'm, I think I might have prayed for a miracle. I think I might have maybe even prayed, like, dear God, can you please just turn that car invisible? Can you, like, lift it out of there with your magical God powers and just move it somewhere else? He chose not to. Um, <laughs> and instead, my dad opened the garage, and there was the crumpled wrecked 1981 Ford Fiesta that he did not know was destroyed. And my grandfather probably said something pretty passive aggressive, like, hey, cool car, son. Um, and that was one of the darkest moments in my life up to that point, uh, because it was super, super stupid. And I had so many opportunities to avoid what happened next, which was my dad just being furious and my grandpa actually joining him. So I had my grandfather and my father both with their fingers wagging, pointing at me, yelling things at me. I'm sure they were very constructive and helpful things. And I just felt like a complete moron. And I was punished for, as I assumed, several months after that. It was just real stupid, real dumb. And I tell you that story because I want to ask this question today as we go through Psalm 51 here in a minute. The question I want to ask is what are we supposed to do when we know that we've failed big time? What, what do we do when there's no way to avoid it, there's no way to pretend it didn't happen, when we know 
that we have really, really screwed up. And so we're going to get into Psalm 51 in a minute, and I'm going to tell a quick story that leads into it. There was once a king of Israel named David. He came from nothing, nobody, and nowhere special. He was a great man. He was a good man. And God lifted him up and made him king over a struggling nation in need of a godly leader. He was a man of high integrity. When he was being pursued by the king before him, Saul, who wanted to destroy him, and David had the opportunity to end it by killing him, he chose not to because he felt like that wasn't the right thing to do. He could have ended it. He chose not to because it wasn't the right thing to do. And in the end, when Saul finally did die and David became king, typically what a king would do is eliminate all the family members of the previous king just to make sure that nobody tried to come in and take back what was theirs. Instead, David brought all of his family into his house, gave them land, gave them money, took care of them. They ate at his table. He did the opposite of that. He was a man of high integrity. He was a bold lover of God. He didn't care what people thought when it came to how he worshiped. He was often told that you're being a little too much, David, and he didn't care. All of his psalms are about how much God loves him and how much he loves God. He was a bold lover of God. He loved the law. He wrote Psalm 119, which is 176 verses about his love for the law. But yet, we get to 2 Samuel 11, and we see a different side of David. We see something else. That also existed within him. In 2 Samuel 11, we see the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, David had been king for a while, and he had apparently grown a little cocky as king. And it was time for, in the scriptures it said, it was time for, those, uh, for the kings to go off to war. So the people that they were in battles with, the people that they had issues with, the king would go out and lead and inspire his troops. And David decided this year he didn't want to. No, nah, I don't feel like it. They're good. They don't need me. So he stayed home. And while he was home... He looked out his window and he saw a beautiful woman. And because he was king and because he could, he decided she should be mine. So he brought her over and, he, and she was his. And they had a baby. And David freaked out. David chose rather than to bring out and say, guys, I can't believe I did this. I'm so sorry. I need to confess this. I need to end this right now. He decided to hide it. He did everything he could to hide it. In fact, he did so much that he had the husband of Bathsheba killed. So he committed adultery and he had a man killed to cover it up. And he hid this for almost a year. He did these things and he covered it up and he hid it within himself for over a year. And the thing is, you know, the people probably thought that David was being very honorable. You know, one of his soldiers dies, and so he redeems that woman by bringing her into his house. You know, she would have been a lonely widow, but he says, no, 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 I'll help you. That's probably what people thought. He was probably, you know, congratulated for such a wonderful thing. So in this story, I have to ask another question. How could a man so close to God, a man of such high integrity who boldly loved God, who loved the law so deeply, how could a man like that fall into such depravity? How could a man like that fall so far down? And to be honest, the answer to this question is, is truly simple. It's really not that hard. It's really not that difficult for us to fall into that kind of depravity. We have all heard stories or know people personally or may be one of those people ourselves who have fallen so far from what we know to be right. 
because it's just not that difficult. We're only a few steps away from something like this. Because the truth is within us, as it says in the song and as it says in Psalm 51, we were conceived in sin. We were born into it. And it's there. It was in David. It's in us waiting to take the moment where it sees we're vulnerable. None of us are immune. So what do we do if we fail and there's no way to pretend we didn't? David chose to hide it. He'll keep it in darkness, away from the light. So what exactly is the price of hidden sin? Of hidden sin. Our liturgy this morning came from Psalm 32, which is a cousin to Psalm 51, whereas Psalm 51 is sort of his response to being brought into the light. Psalm 32 is him looking back and saying, wow, I was forgiven, and what a wonderful thing that is. He also describes what it was like to be in that hidden sin. In Psalm 32, 3 to 4, he says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. According to David, it was unbearable. It was this enormous weight, this intense heat, this decaying source within him, hiding this sin the way he did. I noticed this week with my son a small little microcosm of this. It was very interesting. We, we do classical conversations on Monday, which is a homeschool co-op. Yes, I do homeschool, and it's okay. Um, we were leaving, and there's a little snack table where if you want, like, a piece of candy or, you know, something like that, you drop in a quarter, and you can take a piece of candy. So my son comes and asks me as we're getting ready, hey, Dad, can I have a quarter? And I was like, buddy, I'm sorry. I don't have one. I don't, I don't carry any coins on me. He's like, all right. So I got my stuff. We're walking out, and I see him standing in front of the table where all the snacks are, and he's sort of just standing there looking at it. Not like looking around, looking for what he wants, but just sort of standing there with his hands at his side and just looking at it. And I was like, hey, bud, what's, what you doing? He doesn't look at me. He doesn't say anything. And immediately, it starts to click in my mind, like, I think he took something. So I ask him, is it cash? Did you take something? And he looked up at me, and he was super sad, and he held out a pixie stick. And I was like, buddy, you can't do that. You can't take stuff without paying for it. And he's like, I know. And he started to cry, and he put it back. I hugged him, and we left. In that tiny moment, my little innocent seven-year-old son experienced the weight of hidden sin. In this tiny little moment, he did something he knew he shouldn't do, and he immediately felt this weight, this guilt of knowing he shouldn't have done that, but he already did it, and he doesn't know how to correct it. And so he just stood there, frozen in fear and in, you know, sadness. And I pulled it out of him, and we brought it out, put it back, and we left, and it was gone. In this tiny little microcosm, I saw that. You know, David did this for over a year. David did this terrible thing, held it close within him, and it nearly broke him. And eventually, God had mercy on David and yanked him out of the darkness and forced him into the light. The prophet Nathan, who was in Israel at the time, who was an advisor to David, who was a good friend of David, came to him and said, I know you did this. God knows you did it. You need to admit it. He calls him out on everything he did, and David is caught. It's over. 
which is both a terrible, terrible feeling and a wonderful feeling of relief to have this hidden sin yanked out of you, brought forth into the light. It's both terrible, and just like if you sat in a room for, of absolute darkness for a year and all of a sudden brought into the light, it both feels great and terrible. This is what David did. He could have said, no, he could have kept fighting, he could have denied, he could have tried to sink deeper, he could have said, I'm the king, you don't talk to me like this, I'm gonna kill you now and keep hiding in darkness. He had all these options, but he chose not to. He fell away from that darkness back into the light and said, you're right, I did this. He took responsibility, accepted the consequences of his sin, and in doing so, lifted an enormous weight off of himself. And that's when we get to Psalm 51. This is what he wrote. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. That the, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, and O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." I want to break down this, this psalm a little bit. The first six verses are, are David confessing, laying it down. And this is, you're right, I did do this. 7 to 12 are him asking for forgiveness. And then 13 and on are him repenting, saying, now that this is gone, I will get back to what you've called me to. In 1 through 6, he says this that is, for me, is, is so powerful. He says, my sin is ever before me. I can always see it. It's never out of my sight. My sin is ever before me. Guys, do we, do we hide from our sin? Do we push it away, pretend it's not real or that it's not that big a deal? Or as David said, do we keep our eyes on it and recognize that it is real, recognize that it is heavy, recognize that it is destructive, or do we hide our eyes from it? We cannot avoid what we don't see. If we keep our eyes on that sin that we know exists, we can avoid it. If we pretend it's not real, pretend it's not that big a deal, it is much, much easier for it to sneak up on us and grab us. You see, David's sin was punishable by death. Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with his wife or his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. 
And he didn't just commit adultery. He committed murder in Exodus 21, 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall not be put to death. David asks for mercy, not just from the pain and torture of hidden sin, but from death itself. I don't know. Do we live in a way that we are constantly aware of what we have been saved from? Those of us who have received salvation, you have not just been saved from a difficult life or, you know, from sin itself, but you have been saved from death, eternal death. That is what we have been saved from. And David here recognizes that and sees it and calls it out. And he asks for mercy. He asks for forgiveness. And he recognizes, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. He recognizes that his actions, above all, were against God. Because when we sin, we are choosing ourselves over our creator. We are turning away from God. Sin is no small thing. It is a betrayal against God. And the only price that can be paid to make it right is death. That is the only price that can be paid. He says, you delight in truth and in the inward being. Again, David could have said something like, but God, look at everything else I've done up until now. I've been so good. I've been such a man of high integrity. I worship you boldly. What about Psalm 119? That was pretty good, right? He could have tried to say all these things to say, God, yes, I screwed up, but ultimately I'm not that bad, right? Ultimately, it's not that big a deal. Look at all the things that I've done compared to this one terrible mistake. He could have said that, and we do it all the time. We do it with other people. We do it with God. We try to pretend that because we screwed up once, it's not that big a deal. But the truth is, sin has a price, and that price is death, and that's huge. That's huge. David recognizes it, and he says, I want to be honest. I screwed up. I deserve death. And only when we are truly honest about our sin can we really begin to confess and repent. In 7 through 12, again, he asks for forgiveness. And the really great thing about forgiveness is that it's rooted in God's compassion for the helpless. We cannot wipe away our own sins. We are incapable of doing so. We cannot hide from them forever. It is only God who can forgive. We can't do it. We cannot pay the price that God paid for us. It is only through him that we can receive forgiveness. And what great joy there is to be found in being forgiven. The ultimate joy is not just being forgiven, but it's being forgiven without merit. You know, I know a lot of friends that at this point in their lives, they're saying wonderful things like, I finally paid off my student debt. It's amazing. I owed like $80,000 and I'm 35 and I finally paid it off. Good for you. That's something you earned. You earned that. Forgiveness is not like that. There is no amount of monthly payment you can make on your sin debt to pay it off. You can't. The only way is through God. It has nothing to do with any great thing that you do. All of David's good behavior, all of David's great things were counted as nothing in the light of his sin. They counted for nothing. And that's when David begins to say, clean me, purge me, 
Hide your face from my sins. Blot them out. Rebuild my heart. Renew my spirit. And he even says, he's afraid. He's afraid. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He says this because that's what happened to the king before him. With Saul, the Holy Spirit left him. In 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. David is worried that the same thing will happen to him. He also says, restore to me the joy of salvation. Receiving forgiveness, coming into the light, releases those burdens and returns us to the joy of salvation. Really quick story that that I thought of when I was reading this. I went to San Francisco one time. It was my friend. We had a great time. I loved that city. It was amazing. We went on this little boat trip to go see some whales, right? I know that I get seasick. It's annoying. I hate it. I can't stop it. I get car sick if I'm in the car when I'm not driving. It's really frustrating. It makes me feel weak, and I don't like it. So I knew that I was going to get seasick. I absolutely knew it. So before we got on the boat, I had, there's these like little wristbands that you can wear that have this little bead on it that are supposed to help you. You take ginger candy or whatever. I took whatever the pill is that makes you not dizzy anymore, the one you take when you go on planes. What is it? Dramamine. I took too much of that. I took too much of it. I, didn't, I wanted, really, really did not want to get sick on this stupid boat, but got on the boat, and about 20 minutes in, I got sick. It was foggy, and it was dark, and it just, it, I don't know, it just felt dismal. And I don't know, I threw up eight or nine times off the side of the boat. It was the worst. And I was, like, frozen. Like, I sat on the boat, and I couldn't move. If I moved, I was going to throw up. So I'm just sitting there. It's cold. It's wet. I can hear the sounds of whales and people being excited, and I'm frustrated because I wanted to see the stupid whales, and I just can't do anything. I'm frozen with seasickness. And... The, the, the next thing that happened is super weird. And I feel like it happened so that I could use it in sermon illustrations because it doesn't make any sense. So we're coming back. And there's like four or five of us on the boat that are all in the same state. And we passed under the Golden Gate Bridge. And all of a sudden, it was light outside. The fog was gone. The wetness was kind of gone. And I stood up. And I was fine. I felt great. Everybody that was sick started getting up and walking around and felt fine. We got to see some whales. It was beautiful. It makes no sense. I don't understand it. But when I came out of, and I'm sorry for how cheesy this is. It's great. It works perfectly. When I came out of the darkness and I got into the light, I felt a million times better. When David says, restore to me the joy of of my salvation. He's asking to be taken out of that foggy, dark place and brought back into the light that fills him with joy. He's begging for it. And see, he's been in this fog for a long time, and now he finally feels like it's going to be gone, and he's right. And in the next section, he turns back to God. He begins to repent. He begins to say things like, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He has experienced this kind of mercy, this kind of compassion that he wants to bring to others. He wants to turn from this darkness and walk in the light and move deep into the light and begin to show other people who are in darkness what the light is like. 
He doesn't want to show them what they're doing wrong. He doesn't want to tell them, because you're living like this, this is going to happen. He wants to say, God is merciful. Look at this mercy. God is full of forgiveness. Look at this forgiveness. Look at what he did for me. He can do that for you. We bring people to Christ through a celebration of mercy rather than a celebration of doing what's right and showing them what they're doing wrong and saying, you need to fix this. You need to stop this. You need to start this. You need to move away from this. Rather, we say, God has so much mercy for you. God is full of compassion for you. And David realizes that here. See, when we repent, we ask, we accept God's mercy and flee from the sin that kept us in darkness. We once again experience that joy of God's light and we see God for who he is, the giver of life, our savior, our only hope. In repentance, we accept our helplessness before God and he wipes away our shame and fills us with joy. So let me go back to my first question. What do we do when we know we have failed? The answer is obvious but difficult. We don't hide. We don't fade into the darkness and just hope it goes away. We come into the light and we repent. And the the great thing is, the wonderful thing is, the great, wonderful, I can't express how beautiful it is, is that repentance is fundamentally different for David than it is for us. We live in a post-Christ world where Christ has done what David begged for, where the sacrifice has already been made, the price of sin has been paid, that death that I kept talking about that we have to pay for sin to be forgiven, it's paid, it's done. David lived in a world where that hadn't happened. And the fear of death loomed over him. The fear of losing the Holy Spirit loomed over him. Again, we need not fear that. Ephesians 1, 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit is that he will not leave you. He will not leave you. David feared it. We don't have to. David feared death because of his sin. We don't have to because of what Christ did for us. David cried out to God for forgiveness, for cleansing, for the Holy Spirit. All the things that David cried out for, all the things that David needed and desired and wanted so deeply, Jesus has given us. How envious David would be of us. Christ stands in that gap between us and God and calls us clean, though we are not. We have not received forgiveness because of merit. We have received forgiveness because God has compassion on the helpless. And that is what we are, helpless to save ourselves, helpless to fix ourselves, helpless to beat back that sin that lurks and waits to grab us. Christ has defeated it. One of my favorite passages, we actually talked about this in student time last week, is when when Jesus says, I have overcome the world. No one on the planet can say that without being immediately sent away. No one on earth can say, 
I have overcome the world. We can say things like, I'm here for you, I love you, I'm, I, I care for you, I want to help you. But we can't say to someone who is broken and scared and, and in need, don't worry, I've overcome the world. That's crazy talk. There is only one being that has lived on this planet that can say that, and it is Jesus Christ, and he did it for us. He did not do it because he could. He did not do it because it felt cool to overcome the world. He did it because of his compassion for the helpless, you and I. He overcame the world. And I think oftentimes we fear repentance, this, this turning away from our sin, because we have to look at it first. We fear this Sin staring us in the face because it's ugly. It's terrible and we don't like it. We don't like to confess because it's admitting that we're helpless. It's too real. But what we forget and what David realized is that repentance is part of the most beautiful gift that God has given us. That thing David desired most of all. It is not ugly it is not shameful, but it is beautiful. It is a reminder of God's love and mercy. And when we do repent, when we flee from that sin, we are stepping out of the darkness into the light. So I want to ask you, I want to tell you, I want to implore you, I want to beg you. Whatever hidden sin you are holding in your heart right now, whatever sin you are holding back and hiding from yourself, from God, bring it out. Leave it at the feet of Jesus. Whatever it is that you just don't want to admit, that you don't want to talk about, that you don't want to think about, look at it, talk about it, think about it, let it go. This is the wonderful gift of repentance that God has given us. That we can look at that thing which, as David said, causes our bones to waste away and say, you don't own me. You have no power over me. My God has overcome the world and there is no sin that can keep me from his love. The only thing that can keep me from that compassion and that forgiveness and that mercy is me pretending it doesn't exist. Me pretending it's not real. Me saying, no, nah, I never did that. Or no, I don't want to talk about it. Confess, repent, and restore to yourself the joy of your salvation. Sin does not own you. That price of death is done. It's paid. Grab that mercy. Grab that compassion. Hold on to it. Get out of the darkness. Step into the light. As Jesus said, and as I'm going to end, he said, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me pray. God, you are strong and mighty and lovely and beautiful and wonderful. And we need you. We are helpless without you. God, call us out of that darkness. Yank us out and bring us into the light. God, remind us who you are, our creator, our savior, our father, our friend. God, let each and every one of us in this room that is dealing with one of those with that hidden sin, with that thing we don't want to talk about, God, draw it out of us. Yank us out of the darkness and into the light that we might again restore to ourselves the joy of your salvation. I ask all this in the redeeming and strong name of your
your son, Jesus.